the Springs Project. A slow read, a patient slow read of William James's Springs of Delight, The Return to Life, published by Vanderbilt Press in 2001, read by the author Phil Oliver in 2015. Installment two in the preface. The philosophy which is so important in each of us is not a technical matter, wrote William James. It is our more or less dumb sense of what life honestly and deeply means, a sense better enacted and enjoyed than enunciated. This creative tension was not resolved by James, who never stopped talking about the insufficiencies of talk. He said, I'm tiring myself and you, I know, by vainly seeking to describe by concepts and words what exceeds either conceptualization or verbalization. As long as one continues talking, intellectualism remains in undisturbed possession of the field. The return to life can't come about by talking. It is an act. To make you return to life, I must set an example for your imitation. I must deafen you to talk or to the importance of talk. Or I must point, point to the mere that of life. And you, by inner sympathy, must fill out the what for yourselves. Having thus acknowledged the irony in pitching more words at rich phenomena that must elude them, I should explain the remainder of my title. James's richly imagistic phrase, Springs of Delight, equivocates judiciously between connotations of mechanism and organic nature, implying, as James does in general, the shared and natural sources of the varieties of human flourishing. Our transcendently delightful moments spring proximally from the body's marvelous biomechanism, and subjectivity modulates them with personal symbolism and the seeming spontaneity of pure and cleansing waters gushing from unplumbed depths. But then, curse our masochistically curious souls, we reflect and descend. A little cooling down of animal excitability and instinct, a little loss of animal toughness, a little irritable weakness and descent of the pain threshold will bring the worm at the core of all our usual springs of delight into full view and turn us into melancholy metaphysicians. But usually, after suffering the falling dead of the delight, we rebound. The music can commence again, and again and again at intervals. Our natural condition is to know both aspects of experience in turn, delighted animal spontaneity and angst-ridden cerebration. Our challenge is to reconcile them. Our method, an uneasy mix of philosophy and untutored experience. Our enemies, metaphysical malaise and that excessive intellectualism that discredits experience in advance. And our holy grail, the pearl of inestimable price, is no less than the promise and prospect of happiness, flourishing and fulfillment for ourselves and our kind. Jamesian transcendence is not hostile to the verbal arts, and for some of us is even inseparable from them, but it draws deeply from those subjective personal realms of experience that in their fullness are truly beyond words mysteriously and delightfully implicating the fact that individuals vary from the human average in all sorts of directions and dance to very different music. Spontaneous deviation from the norm is not a total mystery, of course. The more we learn of our own evolutionary epoch and the rich and growing complexity of life, the more we will have to say about the numinous nature that is our native habitat. But we can be confident and grateful 
that life will always exceed and overspill our words, and when they lure us into confusion or insubstantiality, we'll beckon our return. The human spirit is intrinsically, inescapably personal, but is also vitally related. If my book is occasionally more confessional than much contemporary philosophy, that is because my own vital relations have brought home to me the wisdom of bonding the personal narrative voice to the human search for transcendence. James says of Whitman that although he wrote autobiographically and in the first person, his practice was not from personal conceit, but from the desire to speak expansively and vicariously for all. Perhaps Walt Whitman was ambitious, maybe presumptuous, but well-motivated nonetheless. I intend my own voice in these pages to be illustratively personal, not exhibitionistic, but I know of no way to express the full meaning and importance of our subjective enthusiasms and commitments without speaking of my own. It may be customary to philosophize about such matters in abstraction and to hold subjectivity at arm's length from transcendence. My approach, however, is more like Thoreau's. I should not talk so much about myself if there was anybody else whom I knew as well. And Kierkegaard was right. Life is understood backwards but lived forwards. A homily best funded as the recognition that life is lived personally and concretely. There may be such a thing as a fallacy of misplaced concreteness. But not when it comes to understanding the exuberant excess of our subjective propensities and the resulting spiritual dimensions of the subjective imagination. Spirituality is the link of continuity between every human breath, every moment, and every epoch. It is what binds the personal, the social, and the philosophical. Life, as James says, is a chain, a flowing stream, mixing metaphors, of succession to which we may contribute, not only through the spires of our genes, but more overtly in our voluntary devotions and ideals. The living breath that measures our moments and days also marks the distance between an attentive present, coveted futures, and life's remote denouement. Respiration, inspiration, and aspiration are entwined aspects of the vision of life as a chain. The year 1998 was full of remarkable, even surreal, contrasts. It was an ignoble year. A sitting president of the United States found himself obliged to testify publicly about matters once thought too indelicate for words, especially those emanating from the mythically hallowed halls of the People's House and the Congress. He was required to defend his interest in the sublime artistry of our great national poet of democratic transcendence as other than just more proof of his own degeneracy. Indeed, the president's accusers found his gift of leaves of grass provocative and possibly salacious. But for me, 1998 was also a year of stunning, gratifying reverse. A new home run king was crowned. That turned out to be less noble than we thought at the time. And many of us who think the game of baseball sometimes radiates a spiritual transcendence were seduced to end our unhappy estrangement, which had been brought on by a player's strike and an owner's lockout and so forth. Baseball's spring is again, for those of us captivated by that old spell of our childhood, a recurrent source of delight. 1998 also brought a particularly personal day of transcendent delight. On a crisp February morning, my Vanderbilt faculty advisors, John Locks, Michael Hodges, John Compton, John Post, and Paul Dokecki approved an early version of this work and granted my admission to the Club of Credentialed Scholars. Dr. Locks's deft but unobtrusive direction 
allowed me finally to subdue the Ph.D. octopus and discover the personal and spiritual spontaneity whose expression James considered higher education's greatest and most sadly neglected custodial responsibility. In true Jamesian style, Dr. Locks barges into the philosopher's lecture hall with the direct concerns of everyday life to help his students decide or discover what is important for them in their lives. He personifies teaching's ideal. I'm indebted to so many inspirational friends, former colleagues, and to teachers that I cannot thank them all here by name. I am very grateful to my family for their unstinting support and particularly to my father, my late father, Dr. James C. Oliver, for all his exemplary ways, not only with words. I appreciate my in-laws, the Roths of Hohenwald, Tennessee, for their tireless help and especially for their daughter. My wife, Dr. Sharon Roth, is a relentless motivator. Perhaps I could have done it without her, but I would not have. And thanks to our daughters, Emma and Katie, I have also learned that daily companionship with a questioning child is a reminder of what intelligence is for, not ultimately for dominion, but for communion. This book is better for being the product of a writer whose stake in the future is as tangible as the flesh and blood, and I now understand the spirit of precious others whose flourishing I cannot, would not distinguish from my own. American philosophers typically assert a preference for living realities over remote abstractions. My family has taught me what that means. I thank everyone at Vanderbilt Press for their equable professionalism in shepherding this book into print. I'm proud to contribute to the important and growing Vanderbilt Library of American Philosophy. Despite my reservations about the impact of computing in our time, I am happy to acknowledge the critical assistance of colleagues encountered in the cyberspace of various internet forums. Their mediated presence can be invaluable to those of us who have sometimes toiled, as I have, outside the conventional vineyards of academe. And speaking of computers, in giddy anticipation of Y2K, the year 2000, a surprising number of survivalists were taken more than half seriously by as many normally sensible folk in their apocalyptic predictions of a millennial crash when the machines stop counting years. But hope springs eternal for those who greet the future in the spirit of William James with a stirring awareness of real risk, the promise of real gain, and the zestful expectancy that best suits an open, evolving, personal, and pluralistic universe. Nashville, Tennessee, August 2000.